Kings chapter 4. And I might beat you there because I have a marker there. But I'll wait. 2 Kings chapter 4. And we're in verses 38 through 44 this morning. God's word says this. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread and the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for whatever it is you're going to do and have already been doing in our lives as a result of being here today. Convict us and encourage us and remind us and and everything. You know what each individual person here needs today. And we thank you for doing that as we engage uh, with your text. In Jesus' name, amen. The omnicompetent God. (laughs) Mr. Thorburn said, wow, that's a big word. (laughs) You're putting these big words on us. The omnicompetent God. Uh, That's not one when you you list the attributes of God or you teach them or read a, a, a systematic theology. That's not one that's listed as they talk about the attributes of God. Uh, where there's communicable attributes and incommunicable and all that stuff, uh, you start listing uh, the attributes of God, and somebody will say holiness, and somebody will say something else, and then we get to the omnis. Somebody says omniscient, uh, omni, omniscience, uh, omni-all-knowing, omni-meaning-all. Somebody will say omnipotent, omni-meaning-all, all-potent, all-powerful. Um, omnipresent is one where God is everywhere. And there's other words that they give. But I saw this this week uh, just as a word maybe even coined by the person writing uh, that particular commentary. But I just thought that is wonderful. And I thought about that all week. God being all competent. The omnicompetent God. Um, We have people that, that God's blessed them and they are competent in this field or that field or they can do this thing or that thing. Think of God being omni, all-competent. And we see it this morning. There will be two 
points to make, two little vignettes uh, here in, in 2 Kings, and we'll look at those. The first one we're going to look at is the omnicompetent God and our mistakes. And secondly, the omnicompetent God and our basic needs. First of all, the omnicompetent, the all-competent God and our mistakes. See, first of all, the situation of God's people in verse 38a. Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. A famine in the land. Uh, Not every instance of famine in the land is a direct result of God's judgment. But many times as we read through the Old Testament accounts of God's people, uh, a lot of times the famines were sent to draw the people back to God. And it was a result of God's judgment. Listen to, I just picked one passage out. Listen to Leviticus chapter 26. And I'll read verses 11 through 15 and 20. And this is the blessings for obedience and punishment for disobedience. Leviticus 26 says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my covenant, abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And God lists some things that will happen as a consequence to his people. And he finishes up in verse 20 by saying this, And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Several passages like this throughout as God is setting up his people. Now, I'm going to be quick to say, we don't want to all of a sudden tie this to America or any country. Uh, When we see God's people in the Old Testament, we're looking at God's church. His Old Testament church is Israel and his people. And so the, the greatest parallel, if you really want to make it a parallel to today, look at God's churches today. And look at churches that in their creeds, in, in their scriptures, in their founders, and the people that started these movements, and look and see how far denominations have gone doing the very opposite things, opposing God. And look at the famine of God's word in God's people, and the people starving just to hear the Bible preached. And all it is is this thing and that thing and whatever the fad is, and the Bible is, 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 is nearly forgotten. Um, and when referred to, uh, boy, it's true every time it's referred to, but not necessarily in the context to which it's referred to. Um, so think about that in those terms. Uh, please. Our famine today is mostly for spiritual food. The church is being disrespected by people who don't look to see if they're godly or not godly. And we see the results even in churches that have Bible verses outside on their billboards and their signs. We need to see in this context, there's this physical element of of a famine in the land. And understand this. 
that even those who are still loyal to God are affected. Just like the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and that's portrayed as common grace, a good thing, because everybody needs rain for the things to grow. In the same way, uh, the famine affects the unjust and the just. So there's this little pocket of people. And Elisha came to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And these prophets, these sons of the prophets, were part of that. What we're saying is basically the opposite of the health and wealth gospel. That's what we're saying. Okay. Secondly, under this point of the omnipotent, omnicompetent God in our mistakes, understand the earthiness of God's interests. God cares about what's going on in your heart and soul. He cares about those temptations. He cares about uh, spiritual growth in the lives of his people. But you know what else he cares about? What you eat. He cares about what you eat. He cares about what you have uh, over your head as a roof. He cares about the clothes you wear. Um, Eight total times in our text today, eat, eat, eat. Uh, God cares about this stuff in this world we live in. It would have been a tragedy for them in a time of famine to throw out this food. They sat down to eat. Somebody had gone out. I bet this uh, person that went out and gathered these wild gourds said, he might have even, I can hear him say, look what God sent us today. God really provided. He's so happy to cut these up. And then he probably thought he was uh, Julia Child or, or Emeril or one of these chefs. Boy, he, was, he had something new and something different. And he made a good pot of stew for these guys. Eat, eat, eat. God cares about what we eat. Uh, we don't necessarily, we, we see pictures of stuff of store shelves being empty and maybe we can't find this. It's not so bad yet. I mean, I've seen pictures of Germany, uh, something that struck me as a kid was seeing uh, those Germans with a wheelbarrow full of cash going to buy a loaf of bread with that wheelbarrow full of cash. It got that bad. Um, and, and it's hard times. We haven't experienced that yet. Most of us, probably I, I, from a betting man, maybe none of us, but I'm not, I'm not a betting man. So, so I would say a lot of us have not experienced that. I'll say it that way. Um, listen, and, and, and a guy named Ray Dillard wrote a book called Faith in the Face of Apostasy. And he uh, tried to help us get our mindset back into this mindset in the scriptures. Uh, Ray Dillard said, it is striking how many of the stories about Elijah and Elisha have to do with food. It is difficult for modern Western readers to understand what life in an agrarian society of basically subsistent levels, substance levels, meant for the average individual in ancient Israel. Starvation and hard times were never far away. In modern Western countries, food is a far smaller part of a household budget than it has ever been. The time invested in gathering it is ordinarily limited to how long one spends in a supermarket or convenience store and perhaps a small family garden. Life was very different in ancient Israel. In subsistence or marginal economies, providing daily bread may represent the largest expenditure one makes and may also consume almost every waking moment. The woman in Somalia who leaves 
to try to find a handful of something or other rice for her family. This is what was going on here. The food. And their favorite meal would have been leftovers because that would have meant they had leftovers. There was something there. God's interested in what goes on in our day-to-day. The rest of 38, uh, uh, set on the large pot, boil stew for the prophets. They poured some out for the men to eat. God's interested in the basics. Sometimes we laugh a little bit and, and say that's kind of wrong theology if somebody prays for a parking space. But I think God cares for that mom who's got the two little kids. Uh, she's at the end. She's got to stop at this one more place. And they are crazy and they're out of control. And she's at her wit's end. And she can't pacify them, but she's got to stop. Don't you think God kind of wants to give that mom and is willing to give that 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 young mom, his daughter here on earth, does he care about that? I, I, I tend to think so. Or the old man or woman with the leg brace or the heart issues or, or things like that. God cares about the basics. He may not give you a good parking space because he cares so much about your exercise that you need to park out there and, and, and walk that stuff off. God's the boss. And God cares about the everyday earthy things. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray. And that's not talking in some metaphorical way. That's saying, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus taught us to pray about that, showing us that God cares about the earthly things. That even came, as somebody pointed out, even before the forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, Daily bread. It's okay to pray for earthly things. You're not being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good if you don't pray for earthly things. Let's take an example uh, that, that's near to, to me and, and, and Paula uh, today. Someone you love is embarking on a long trip, going to drive all night, say from Orlando uh, up to Danbury and then to Vermont. And you're worried about their ability to drive, about road conditions pulling a car behind a U-Haul. And I think it's godly to pray, uh, God, keep an eye on that vehicle. Keep those people alert. God, keep them safe. It's okay before you leave on a trip to pray for safety and things. It's not a bad thing. It's, God, God's not saying, you're wasting my time. All I care about is the spiritual. Back in the day in, in Florida, my dad was uh, still an active state trooper. I was a youth pastor, and he was coming down. And part of dad's job before he became an officer was he was the education uh, guy. And he would organize little bike riding things for the kids and give prizes. He'd go to high schools and Lions clubs and, and, and things like that and, and speak about safety on the roads. And I had an idea. I didn't know what, what Pastor Finley would think about it. And I said, you know... For youth group, uh, could we have my dad bring his materials? And I'm worried about some of my teenagers who are just learning how to drive, and they think they're they're king of the road, and and, and I'm worried about them. Could, could I have my dad come in and scare them a little bit, and and, and speak about safety, and, and tell some anecdotal things? And I didn't know what Finley would say, 
Now, he knew there were times those kids would come into youth group and I'd give them nine pages single-spaced on the limited atonement, and they ate that up too. But John said, listen, he said, we want our youth group kids to be spiritual and to grow spiritually, but how can they do that if they're dead? He said, yes, the mundane, the, the earthly stuff, that's a good thing to do for them. That's why we're hosting the financial peace course, because God does care. He tells us over and over again about being good stewards of the finances he's given us. He wants to give us opportunities to be able to be generous and give and, and, and all of those things. And so uh, it might seem like a not such a spiritual thing as, um, um, I don't know, antinomianism versus uh, whatever, or, uh, infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. That, that can kind of be interesting. But you know what? In addition to those great spiritual things, God cares about you day to day and what you have going on day to day. So we see then, the man goes out. There's food in the midst of a famine, but the food is bad food. And and, uh, they cry, there's death in the pot. No no record that anybody died from this, but they felt it in their stomachs. They were, you know, they had to go to urgent care. They had to, uh, there, was, there was a threat. Throughout all this food, go hungry this meal, but people are getting sick and dying. There's death in the pot or potentially dying because they use the word there's death in the pot. And we see then the sign of God's work in verse 41. He said, bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and he said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And then there was no harm in the pot. Sometimes Jesus used signs when he healed people. It wasn't the sign that healed people. There was a blind man, for instance. Jesus spit and he took mud and he made spittle and he made a little thing on the guy's eyes and eventually that guy saw. Sometimes Jesus just used his word without the sign and said, restore his sight and it was done. So it's not the sign, it's not the flower that was magic. It was the word of God that healed. But there was a visible sign that God used, and sometimes God uses those things and helps us see very, very clearly something to point us to him. But it's God's word that is the healing uh, power. Be glad that God uses what it takes to sustain your faith even if it's just a handful of flour thrown into a pot of stew. And then we want to see this, the fallibility of God's servants. As we talk about the omnicompetent God, the omnicompetent God and our mistakes. And I'm looking at people, well, I bet you've made mistakes. (laughs) I bet this week you made some mistakes. I bet you had some good days, some bad days. I bet you sinned, and I bet... Not sinningly, but I bet you just made mistakes. I did. This was an honest mistake. But it was a mistake. And I want us to really see something we don't think about maybe so much, that God is even competent to atone for our mistakes. I was listening to, um, on the radio, I've I've listened to some Big Ten sports uh, mostly Iowa Hawkeyes, but then if, if a game affects some other team, I listen to that. And Oh, I did have, I listened yesterday on, on Indiana pulling the upset over Purdue. Uh, the Indiana, I was listening to Indiana announcers. 
and uh, apparently it was a raucous game because Purdue was number one, and, and uh, the announcer came on. He said, the next uh, item that gets thrown on the floor of the court, Indiana will be charged with a technical foul. And the Indian announcers were saying, why would he say that? If I'm for Purdue, I'm going to start throwing things on the floor then. Uh, right. Uh, but listening last fall to a Purdue game, they kept running this one commercial about mistakes. Now, think about this. Uh, a guy was advertising. He was an insurance, uh, had an insurance company. And he kept saying, you know, kind of bragging about how he'd be the insurance guy that was there. And he says, I've been out there on Thanksgiving Day to people's houses when Grandma left the cranberries on the stove too long. Then he goes on to say, it was nobody's fault, but I was there. And I thought, what do you mean it was nobody's fault? It was grandma's fault. You just said grandma did it, and now you're saying it's nobody's fault. What you mean to say is grandma didn't do it on purpose out of some uh, secret desire to burn the house down or something, but grandma made the mistake, honest mistake. And we make these honest mistakes, and does God care? Is God competent to cover your honest mistakes? The death in the pot didn't get there by itself. Someone went out, In verse 39, he gathered herbs, and while he was gathering the herbs for the stew, he finds this wild vine, and he gets this lap full of wild gourds, and he cut them up in the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. He wasn't trying to kill the fellow sons of the prophets. He wasn't trying to line himself up as as a successor to Elijah and Elisha and then him. He was just made a mistake, and it was a near-deathly one. We do that all the time. And God is competent to cover our mistakes. That God is so in control. That God compensates for my sins. Old professor of mine used to say, God is so holy and so awesome and so omnipotent that he can even handle the sins of his people without getting his hands dirty. He handles sin sinlessly. And I can do that. And I can look back and I have regrets for sins I've done, but I almost have less regrets for those because I've prayed and I've asked God's forgiveness for those. I know Jesus covered those at the cross. But I look back at my honest mistakes. Go, man, I really messed up. Car decisions, house decisions, job decisions, people decisions. My My poem is this. Two roads kept diverging in a yellow wood, and I consistently chose the wrong one thinking it was the right one, and that has made all the difference. Uh, Many of us can say that. And listen to this. I'm here to tell you that even your mistakes, your honest mistakes, uh, cannot undo God's sovereign, loving plan for his people and for you in your life. We mess up all the time, even with the best of intentions. Uh, youth pastoring, uh, then being a, a parent myself, uh, people look at their kids and they go, man, uh, and their kids aren't, aren't, aren't picking up the mantle, or they, they don't know, and the parents want to blame themselves. And they say, uh, parents who say, some say, I was too strict. I wish I hadn't been so strict and just crammed this religion down my kids' throat. I, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was doing the wrong thing, and I, I should have given them more uh, leeway to go and let the Lord find them. But the very same token, 
there, then there, there are parents, for every parent that says that, there are parents that say, I was too lenient. I didn't instill godliness in my kids. I didn't uh, make sure they were there. And both parents are regretful. Both parents' hearts were for their kids and for God. And they wanted, and they both made the best decisions they could with the scriptures they had, uh, not sinning, just making mistakes. And the answer to them is, it's not over till it's over. And God can overcome your honest mistakes. It happens all the time. Hang in there and keep praying and keep trying to do the right thing and keep making your mistakes and God will keep uh, overruling and overriding your mistakes. Newsflash. God's kingdom will not be overthrown by your honest mistakes. We move on to the next point, but there's a tongue-in-cheek a reference uh, to this story uh, by Dr. Davis. He said, you can probably resume going to church suppers. Just be careful. <laughs> and be careful to learn what this near disaster is telling you about your God. So now we see the omnipotent God in our basic needs, or the omnicompetent God in our basic needs. Uh, verse 42, realize and be encouraged by this. Faith still lives in a faithless land. Verse 42a, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, etc., etc. Um, there's still faith in a land. This land was racked by idols and idolatry. People had turned from the true God. But here's somebody out of nowhere. Uh, there's, there's, of course, the sons of the prophets. There's, of course, Elisha. But here comes a man who still believes in what the Bible says about giving first fruits and, and, and coming and bringing and, and observing and, and giving back to God of what God has given him. The word first fruits, see it in three places uh, that I wrote down. There's more than that. Uh, Exodus 23, 19. A, the best of the, your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, 20. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. They shall be holy to the Lord. Numbers 18, 13. This is an instruction to the priests. The first ripe, ripe fruits of all that is in their land which they bring to the Lord shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. This man, in a land of idolatry, there was one, and I'm sure there were more, a man who was fulfilling scriptures. Not everyone who was part of God's people during the famine was giving back to God or obeying him in any way, but this man was. There's a remnant. Don't feel so alone. Don't feel like you're the only one. God's got his Christians everywhere. And in surprising places at that. You've probably seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric Liddell, uh, you know him as the guy who ran and he felt God's glory. Uh, maybe you know or you picked up from the movie or you remember that. He was, his family was a missionary family to China. And this happened when he was in China, which was occupied at that time by Japan. And uh, at an inn, when the Japanese military came in, and the Japanese military was not for God. They were definitely not for God. They were godless. And you can read accounts, and it'll break your heart of what people can do to people. And this Japanese military had a reputation for that. Uh, but he was an inn, and he was there. He was there legitimately. But the Japanese military came in to inspect all the luggage. And the Japanese soldier inspecting his luggage saw his New Testament there. He had kind of nestled in between some things. 
And the Japanese soldier didn't have a great command of English, but he said, Bible, you Christian? And when Eric Little said yes, the man held out his hand, shook his hand, and walked away, leaving that Bible. And Little and we can say that God has his Christians and has his people everywhere. Don't undercount that. God's always had his remnant. And here's a man driving down with all this food, uh, the first fruits during a famine, even, to supply. Now, the last and final point of this second is the word that still supplies a needy people. Verses 43 and 44. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. In this case, he didn't say, where's that handful of flour? I'm going to throw it in here and make this multiply. In this case, it was the word without the sign, but they saw it happen. God, the provider. Rick referred to that even in his prayer uh, as we prayed, and we've got to be thinking about that and, and, and keep reminding ourselves, God is the provider. Uh, what if I die? How will my family be taken care of? Well, who's taking care of your family anyway? God's taking care of your family. He just happens to be using you. What if I lose my job? Who'll feed my family? Uh, Well, who's feeding your family anyway? It's not your job. God's using your job. Thank God for your job. Do a good job. Uh, If that's the job he's called you to, you do it and you take and you, you, you provide. But God's the provider. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you, let you hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You live not because of your bread supply or your digestive system, but because God says you will live. And then he supplies the bread, and he keeps that digestive system working for you to live. God's word is certain. We're not saying in this passage, and I'm not saying this morning, and don't get me, don't, don't misunderstand. We're not saying that every Christian will always have their favorite meal cooked the way they like it every time they sit down at any table. But it is saying that whatever God wants to happen will happen no matter what. And God constantly portrays himself as one who takes care of his people. Think of of that psalm. Didn't write it down, didn't have the reference, but he said, never have I seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging bread. Uh, promises like that throughout. So here's Davis, and then we'll go to our final application. Um, Davis says, 2 Kings 4 puts me back in the Deuteronomy 8.3 situation. That's the passage I just read you. It doesn't guarantee me immunity from need or even starvation. Rather, it means that I stand beside that manna-seeking Israelite that Wednesday morning, and I say, I will eat today if I eat, because Yahweh has decided that I will have enough. And David says, and that's not bad, and it begets praise. Give us this day our daily bread, and thank you, God, 
for giving us this day our daily bread. Application and conclusion. New Testament reading in our service today uh, that that Rick read was the incident where Jesus fed the 5,000. The stories are not exactly parallel. In the New Testament accounts, Jesus fed more people with less. There's 100 back here. uh, There's 5,000 there. And as one of our young people in our Sunday school class pointed out, when I mentioned the 5,000, and this one said, ah, it's really more than 5,000 because that just says 5,000 men. And there were wives and children. I said, ooh, that's impressive that you know that. And and thanks for the reminder. Uh, Jesus feeding from nothing uh, was was a a follow-up to this precursor where Elisha, through God's word, did that. You see, Jesus capable. And if if that's the case, then, then we just have ample proof that God is able to provide. Now, we're getting ready to go to a longer story. These have been little vignettes. There's about four or five of them in in, in 2 Kings 4. What we've seen over today in the last two weeks is this. God's power over debt. The women and the sons with the oil that filled all those pitchers. Then we see God's power over death. The raising of the Shunammite woman's son. That was last week. We see God's power over danger. The death in the pot. We see God's power over deficiency and the feeding of these hundred men. You have, actually, hopefully, I can say in your case, you've had a debt that you could not pay, just like that woman. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God's power over debt, the debt that was paid on our behalf when Jesus took our place on the cross and died for each and every sin we committed in thought, word, and deed, omission, commission, all of those things. Your payment, your spiritual debt was paid. God's power over debt, we see it in a spiritual sense. God's power over death. You have and or had, before you became a Christian, an appointment with death. It was there. You didn't know when it was going to happen, but it was there. And we see that that death was canceled. We see God's power over death. For as in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. God's power over danger. Psalm 27, 1 through 5. Listen to this, and I'll try to slow down and, and read it so you can, can follow it. Psalm 27, 1 through 5. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assailed me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And you see God's power over danger in that psalm and throughout scripture. And finally, God's power over deficiency. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 is a good passage to to, to plug into this. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, and you know the end of it, then I am strong. God's power, I hope you see it this morning. God's power over debt, God's power over death, God's power over danger, and his power over deficiency. God is truly the omnicompetent God. And it's our privilege to worship him and to know that. Let's pray, thank him, and ask him, and we'll move to the table. Lord, thank you for being competent where we are not. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins through Jesus. But thank you also, Lord, for teaching us from our mistakes, but also compensating for our mistakes. We thank you that your loving plan uh, is so good and great in the lives of your people that we don't even have to beat ourselves up in, in fear and, 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 and park our lives back where we made some great mistake. Because we know, Lord, you are the sovereign God in charge of even that time. Well, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross for his people. We thank you that he rose. We thank you for everything that's involved in being a Christian. We thank you that you've given us a, a gap time between when we were saved until you call us to heaven. And we thank you that we get to live in it now. We thank you for your great words and encouragement from Scripture about how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.